Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. A what up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Haig. With me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Shalom. How's it going, brother? It's going well. This is. Oh, I feel like I'm in new technology. My Skype is all new. You know, I mean, it's a new world. We should ask everybody online if they can hear a echo because uh, I finally got my audio working. We did all these tests yesterday. Everything worked just fine. And then uh, Rob called me this morning, and now I am hearing a huge echo on my half. On my we're mind. hoping that's not actually happening in Caleb's brain. <laughs> we're hoping it's not being broadcast out to everyone out in, uh, you know, Caleb, the radio Caleb, land. Let me, let me. Ask, ask you, you. Yeah, question, exactly. Question. That's, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. Uh, it's it's a little bit frustrating, but that's okay. Um yeah. Anyway, so how is everybody? <laughs> okay, someone said barely can hear Rob. Barely can hear Rob. Okay. Check one, two. Thanks for the feedback. Yeah, uh, keep giving us feedback when Mr. it comes to Daniel. the sound. Gary says no echo, and Gary concurs with. Uh, okay. Yeah, I just yeah. I just turn I just turn you up uh, in the radio feed. So okay, that, that should be good. In fact, I'll turn me up a little bit too. There we go. Okay. Anyway, so uh, we have been traveling to the ETS and SPL. If you listen to our last show, show 101, yeah, show 101. If you listen to show 101, then you know exactly what we're talking about because we did our show from Atlanta with my father and Gary Springer, which was great. We had a fun time doing it. And so now we're back. Uh, what what did you think of the ETS slash SP? And for those who might not know, the even the ETS is the Evangelical Theological Society, and the SBL is the Society of Biblical Literature. I forgot to turn my light on. Hang on, just a sec. Yeah, we we need to see you better. <laughs> uh, so it, it was uh, yeah, amazing. What do you think? It it was amazing. I mean, I I don't know what what to say, but um. From my perspective, just to give everybody a nuts and bolts, we, we met in uh, Atlanta for two different conferences. The ETS, which is a faith-based uh, conference. The E is for evangelical. But uh, it has an S in it, which means society. And then we have the SBL, Society of Biblical Literature. So there's two uh, conferences meeting back-to-back, and a lot of people attend both. But the SBL, the second conference of, in the row, is not faith-based. So, uh, so we have one foot in one world for a while and then another foot in, in quite a different world. Um, and throughout, we have different book uh, and software, Bible studies a type uh, of companies that set up shop in a large convention hall. This year it was on two different floors, which was kind of inconvenient, but nevertheless, uh, you have time to browse and go, and of course, that's where the Accordance booth is, and Gary and Tim uh, spend a lot of their time 
helping out, uh, showing people how to use accordance and helping sell accordance. It was was really great. Um, But one of the things that was unique this year is not only did uh, uh, Tim Haig, president of Tor Resource, he presented both at the ETS and at SBL. I presented at SBL for the first time, so I came into it differently than the years before. I was really nervous about about that. But you you did great. You had a great experience, yeah. I've been, uh, uh, Dr. David Marcus of Jewish Theological Seminary, he invited me to follow up in San Antonio to come give another paper already, so Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that and praying about it. But what, and Caleb, I think you and I were at one particular paper where we were just really disappointed. Here we have, you know, we come, we think, oh, they're going to talk about uh, the purity laws in the New Testament or Jesus and the purity laws. And it's like, or dietary laws, pardon me, I think was the one. And here we have people who have PhDs and we're just like going, <laughs> where have these people been? Yeah, exactly. they're, they're like, have you done uh, any research for yeah, this paper? Yeah. It's, it's almost like one guy present, he's a, you know, doctor, it's almost like he used like e-sword or something and he just pulled up some Bible verses and then he stitched <laughs> them together and, and gave just reiterated like the mainline uh, angle on, on things that the purity or the, uh, I, I, I'm saying purity, but I should say dietary to be more specific. Dietary laws were done away in the New Testament and that the issue at Galatians 2 where Peter was eating with Gentiles was that e- Peter was eating ham. Yeah, basically that Peter was eating unclean animals in Galatians two, and then when the people, you know, bullies from Jerusalem came down, that Peter said, "Oh, I better, I better stop eating ham while these Jewish guys are around," and we, I'm like pulling my hair out. You know, <laughs> yeah, Rob was they, not very not literally, happy. Not literally, um, but anyway. So there were times where we were just really disappointed, um, and, but then there were times where we were like, "Wow, you know, this was really good and, and different." So. Um, oh, like, I was. Yeah. I, I thought the whole thing, even the papers I didn't like. I thought it was a, a complete blessing. It was just, just awesome. And it looks Absolutely. like it looks like next next year in San Antonio we have, uh, we have, all, several people at least coming from Torah Resource Institute. I hope so. Hope so th- hopefully that will. Uh, yeah, that should be that should be pretty pretty good. Pretty excited about all that. So. Uh, any any specific papers that you thought were your favorite? My favorite, but the very first paper I went to for the ETS, so it was the very first paper of all the sessions, so that would have been Tuesday morning, was on the Greek language. Teach It was for Greek teachers of New Testament Greek, talking about verbal aspect versus tense. And it was packed room. I was in the back. I had to sit on the floor, basically squat down. Uh, Dr. Bill Mounts, you, you know, whose textbook we use, was in the audience. He was the first to raise his hand, and there was some nice back and forth. Um, so that got into some intricacies of the Greek language, but I left encouraged uh, as one who, as a student of Greek, as one who's trying to facilitate uh, Mounts' material and also to guide readings of in our second-year Greek I was encouraged uh, to pers- persevere into the the details of aspect and and of the verb, and we're trying to integrate that into our discussions for second year Greek. So that was like a real. It was cool to see such top minds in the audience there having that interaction with the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that really sticks out. And another is 
I saw one, one of the first papers I saw for SBL was on um, uh, missional approach to reading the book of Deuteronomy. Hmm. So in other words, seeing, and it's hard to, to, but basically looking at how the book of Deuteronomy uh, has with the feasts in Deuteronomy 16, inclusion of the marginalized, of the widow, mm-hmm, the orphan, mm-hmm. the Levite, the stranger in the gates, that they are critical, bringing them into the worship and the celebration of the feasts of the Lord are critical to the, what, what they were saying is the vision that is in the book of Deuteronomy. The vision of this inclusion, and, and um, it was I, I was really blessed by that, and I took a lot of notes. Those are two that stick out. How about you, Caleb? You know, the one I saw on First uh, Corinthians, what was uh, uh, six eighteen? I think oh, it was. We talked a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah we talked about that last last. last uh, that, that that was really good. I really enjoyed that. Actually, one of the ones that I really enjoyed as well was uh, the one that you and I both went to on the last day uh, on. Uh, meals and cleanliness in the in the first century and they were talking a lot about uh mark seven and uh jody magnus who is a well-known archaeologist uh i just thought that she she's so much fun to listen to but beyond that she just slaughtered (laughs) this one guy this one guy was like (laughs) he's he like gets up he's showing you know he's going through his paper he has all these slides with these different graphs and he's trying to show that that uh there were more ritual baths outside of Jer- Jerusalem than there were in Jerusalem in the first century and so he was using this as a uh as ammunition to try to say that uh the 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 Jews in the first century were not doing ritual baths specifically for the temple to go to the temple but they were doing it out of ritual uh just religious service and uh, so he gets done, and Jody Magnus stands up, and you know she, this guy is more, leans more towards theology. She's obviously an archaeologist, and she just slaughtered on him. I mean, she, she, I think without a doubt, kind of made the whole room agree that there certainly were no, uh, there, there were not more ritual baths outside of Jerusalem than there well, were. She, yeah, and basically, she said that you, you're. Because you're not an archaeologist, you're misinterpreting the archaeological data. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but then at the same time, what I liked about her, and she, uh, you know, I don't know much about her. Uh, she teaches at uh, one of the the North Carolina secular state universities, like Chapel Hill or University of North Carolina well, at she, Chapel she, Hill. Just, just to, to put in here, she, she wrote a book that we use at Torah Resource Institute. Yeah, we we use we use an article, a part of her book. Uh, it's like stone and dung, spit and oil, or that's, something like that. Yeah, that's her stone book. Stone and yeah. oil. So, yeah. uh, uh, but but she says, you know, she says I'm not a text scholar. I'm an archaeol. I'm a trained archaeologist, and she excavates. And I saw a paper that she gave on an excavation in northern Israel that she's doing. Um, it's a synagogue that is amazing mosaic floors with elephants and. Uh, and they're still excavating this. Uh, it's somewhere off near the Sea of Galilee, and she had she she permitted no photography or anything because she says these pictures have not been published yet. Um, but amazing archaeological uh, work on this uh, synagogue remains up in north. Now it's a newer. It's not synagogue from the first century. It's synagogue from like the third or fourth, maybe or even later. I, I don't remember. 
uh, but she's going to be publishing on that. So, uh, but anyway, she she made the point. She says, "Look, I'm a, I'm a trained archaeologist. I'm not a tech scholar. You guys are tech scholars, and you think a little bit differently than archaeology." And so that's the neat. Back to this S. We have Evangelical Theological Society. Then we have the S of Society of Biblical Literature. What what this is coded in that word is a professional organization where people present research to peers, mostly. Now, you don't have to be a PhD to be there. I don't have my PhD. And you don't have to have a degree. You could just be a member of the of the SBL and to be there. But you hear the cutting-edge work of what they're doing. And then at the end of every paper, there's people raise their hand and they have that discussion. Sometimes they'll present the three papers and then they'll have a respondent who's already read the paper and prepared a response, and then it opens up. But the key part there is that uh, either right after each speaker or at the end of the whole session, you will have opportunity to voice questions and to ask questions and confront, to challenge, to say, I support this, and here's something, did you think about this? And that's where we all learn. We all take away, wow, I really like that. I don't know who this guy was in the audience, but he just made a really good point. And there's been times where I've gone over afterwards to say, hey, I really appreciated the question you had. Could you tell me the name of that book you mentioned? Or, you know, there's little things like that that we're able to glean from. Uh, so anyway, the, all that being said is uh, not, we don't go to these thinking that any one scholar is, has a, you know, perfect. But what it is, is they're invested. They're invested in what they're researching. They might be of the, you know, Orthodox Jewish persuasion. They might be kind of a secular Israeli. That's kind of what I get with Jody Magnus. I kind of get that she's just. Oh yeah. She's not really into the God question or theology. She's just has a. She's just passion. there. Yeah, she is just there for the archaeology. That's she's it. a passion for archaeology and history. And then you've got uh, those who are, are a Christian who are there, and so you get a mix. There's a, a Mormon, a strong Mormon thread there. Uh, BYU seems to have people there. There's Seventh-day Adventists have a society that meet, and they talk about the Shabbat, and sometimes, or they talk about this or that. Um, so you kind of, And then with the, the SBL, has a parallel to the American Academy of Religion. That's where you see the Buddhist monks and, and you know, other people who are studying just religion, the theory of religion, history of religion, uh, as a global kind of phenomenon, you know. So you get a little bit of that as well. It was Caleb, a great. It was a great time. I. This is our hundred and second show. Did you say? That's right. One hundred and two. Okay. So, uh, per our new tradition, I have to give some gematria equivalents. Oh, no. For our show. Okay. One is Zvi. That's Zvi. Uh, Tzadi Bet Yod adds up to one hundred and two, and that's like a gazelle, and it has the sense of beauty. Um, here's another one. Emunah, faith. Aleph Mem Vav Nun Hey Emunah. So this is our. Emunah show or faith show, oh, yeah. and then Hakol Tov, Everything will be okay. Everything will be good. Everything will be okay. So, just I, I'm just putting thank it out you. there. Thank you for that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna force the issue. Yeah, but I'm just no, saying, you. hey, it is what it is. The numbers are there. <laughs> Do the math. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So let's move on. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. Let's move on. <laughs> Uh, by the way, we uh, one of the things that we did at the ETS SPL is that we um, we found some new some new sound clips. Now I wasn't able to get all of them, 
but I did pull two specific sound clips. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. There's that one, and then we have we also have this new sound clip. I can't believe we already discussed this. Uh, we'll probably be using that today quite a little bit. Okay. So uh, before we get started on a real topic, I, everyone knows before we went to the ETS slash SBL meeting, we did like five shows in total on Itzhak Shapira's book, Return of the Kosher Pig. It ended up being this huge blow up. Uh, Itzhak Shapira was certainly not happy with us. Uh, he was not happy that uh, he was not happy with me in particular that I would come out against an Israeli uh, rabbi, uh, and he he decided he was not going to respond to... What are you laughing at, Rob? What's going on? Someone said we need an intro to Gamatria Rob. <laughs> Sorry, go back. Send it in. Who said that? Just let me smile. Go. Who, said, who sent it in? There needs to be... Oh, all Someone right. Said, all right, Andre. It's you, man. Send it in. Okay, so... Um, so anyway, everyone should probably know about this. He decided he wasn't going to respond to our uh, to our theological objections. Instead, he decided to just go on to personal attacks. Yeah, I'll just I'll just go right to fifth gear. Yeah, in the wrong direction. <laughs> oh, you disagree with me? You're not Jewish. Oh, you disagree with me? You're not a rabbi. Oh, you disagree with me? You must like John Calvin. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, so now I'm setting this all up because I, I want this to be clear for everyone. Uh, basically, what happened was Itzhak Shapira is was ordained. I'm putting quote marks for everyone out there in Radio Land. Ordained by the IAMCS. Now, this is something that I learned at the uh, ETS meeting that I did not know before. Is that the IAMCS? is the MJAAs. Okay, now I know, I know I'm using a lot of alphabet letters here. So IAMCS is the International Messianic Association of Congregations and Synagogues, IAMCS. Okay, so the IAMCS is the response of the MJAA, which is the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. It's their response to a different, a completely different organization called the UMJC, the United Messianic Jewish Congregations. Okay. So you have these two groups. You have the UMJC, you have the MJAA. The UMJC is basically yeah, saying... Put years on the... These are... Was there... A, are you bringing a timeline into this? I'm not because I'm not fully aware. Okay. Okay. Of the timeline. But basically, the time. once the, you know, the, the UMJC comes out and says, look, uh, we're Jewish... Gentiles go back to the church. Uh, we have we're going to set up our own doctors and our own rabbis, and uh, so now we have this rabbinic authority. The MJAA, who is sometimes you know a, a lot of the leaders are Jewish, they say, "Hey, you know, you're Gentile. You probably shouldn't be keeping the Torah. You definitely don't have to, but we like you anyway. Come on in. You know, you can come into the congregation and everything." But they didn't have this rabbinic authority that the UMJC purported to have. So what does the MJAA do? They start the IAMCS. And this gives them the ability to say, look, we have some rabbinic authority. We have these guys that we call rabbis. And we're going to start ordaining people through the IAMCS. Okay. So that's the background. So Shapira gets his, his rabbinic ordination from the IAMCS. 
everybody clear so far? I know this has been a lot to uh, a lot to try to stay with. Okay, so after I after Rob and I tried to call Shapira's Shapira out on his book and him saying that Yeshua, Metatron, and Enoch are all one in the same, I decided, you know what? It's it would be interesting to me to wonder if this is actually a teaching of the IAMCS or if it's Shapira going out on his own. Right? That's a fair That's fair. Thank That's you. That's fair. Okay. So what did I do? I now I know a lot of people are going to think I'm just stirring the pot. Maybe I am stirring the pot because you got publishers. Yeah, that you got, yeah. The authors are saying this. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I should share, but there was about uh, I think it was the same publisher had a meeting with your father with Tim Haig at the conference, wanting to publish. Can I say that? Yeah, they wanted to publish my dad's books. A letter. Yeah, they wanted to. And Tim's like, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> You publish you're Shapira. Gonna put, you're going to publish my book right next to some of these others? Uh, no. Sorry. I, I, yeah. So um, so it's a, so it, that shows that there's a business. There's a business mentality. Business side that's not interested in. Okay. So wait. It reminds me of the foolish virgins. The virgins that had the lamps and were all excited, but they didn't have the oil. In other words, they, they were in, motivated, but it was all for the wrong reasons. They didn't have wisdom. Adam says clear as mud. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, look, uh, here, here's the issue. Is that I send an email to every single person on the steering committee of the IAMCS. Uh, stirring the pot, perhaps, but I wanted clarification on this. Now, R- Rob, let's set up a uh, pretend scenario. Somebody emails you and says, hey, Caleb Hegg. We, uh, is teaching this. He's saying that Yeshua is not divine. What would you say? Would you not respond to the email? Yeah, you'd want to respond. You would. No, wait, hang on. Say that again. You would what? You would. You would have to. You'd want to respond. You'd have to respond. Okay. Let's let's take it away from me. Okay, someone who shares a radio show with you. Let's say that it's someone who is connected to but not uh, working, you know, like on payroll of Torah Resource. Mark Randall, our, our web administrator, let's say that somebody emails you and says, Mark Randall is teaching against the deity of the Messiah. Would you respond? Well, well yeah. Well, here's – I should clarify. I would say, first off, if it was you or even Mark, I would say, okay, you, you're – I probably don't believe it. My, my initial thought is I, I wouldn't believe it. I would say – what are you even talking about? So, but you would respond, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Here's what I wrote to the all the members on the steering committee of the IAMCS. I, I copied and pasted this quote. I've recently read uh, Itzhak Shapira's book, Return of the Kosher Pig. I understand that Mr. Shapira received his rabbinic ordination from the IAMCS. I also understand. That you are on the steering committee of the IAMCS. I have contacted several people within the IAMCS for clarification on this matter, but no one has responded as of yet. So I hope that reaching out to you will bring a response. Within Mr. Shapiro's book, he spends an entire chapter explaining the Yeshua and the Jewish mystical figure of Metatron, who was once Enoch and ascended to heaven, are one and the same. I am simply wondering... <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm simply wondering 
If the official position of the IAMCS is that Yeshua and Metatron are one and the same, or is this a position Mr. Shapira has taken up on his own that does not reflect the training he received from the IAMCS? Thank you in advance. Shalom, Caleb Hegg. Simple enough, right? I think there's nine guys on the steering committee of the IAMCS. Okay. Only one person responded to me. Only one person. <laughs> to me, that's unbelievable. To me, that is unbelievable. If somebody wrote that to me about anybody that was in even attached to the organization to our resource, I would write back instantly. Here's the response I got. I'm not going to name the person who responded to me out of respect because uh, I don't want to get this person in trouble with his with the organization he's with. Uh, however, his response was exactly what I was looking for, and it was quick and to the point. He says, I am unaware of Rabbi Shapiro taking this position. The IAMCS has not taken this position either. Shalom. Fair enough. Thank you. Like, Th thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That's all I needed. Thank you for be actually having the respect to to respond. Anyway, I responded to this person and said, "Well, thank you so much for your for your response." However, uh, here are the page numbers uh, where it's Dr. Pira clearly teaches this. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, let's move on. I just thought I'd, I, you know, I want to give some credit where credit is due. You know, we we speak against the IAMCS a lot because they have said that we teach a false gospel. They've, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. So credit where credit is due. This gentleman responded. He responded well. I was happy he responded. Thank you to the person who did respond. I know, I know that they don't listen to this show, but okay. This uh, from Scott O. On our YouTube page, he says, quote, I don't agree with your understanding of Hebrew roots. I understand the the movement is a fairly broad, is a fairly broad in its thinking. His words, not mine. The core of it is explained very well in this article. He gives an article, which is in your, I put the, uh, I put the URL in your show notes. It's a blog post called What is Torah Anyway? Okay. I'm going to read the rest of his comments first. He says, uh, this is what I'm trying to say with no universal acceptance, uh, accepted definition of Hebrew roots and Messianic groups. The real problem is not what we call ourselves, but that someone we don't agree with would choose the same title that we use. He might be right on that. I don't like the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, Michael Rood uses the term Hebrew roots or that Monty Judah uses the term Hebrew roots. That is why we should have understanding of others, but should clearly add to our own titles clarification so as not to mislead others. For example, we are a Messianic Torah observant congregation of one grafted body of believers in Yeshua. This is what he's saying. No one. I can, have an idea. Yeah. The union of oh, original no. Hebrew roots. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like we have that in Mormon, you know, in Mormonism. Yeah. If you look at, isn't there like a LDS and then there's a... Uh, yeah, there's the the, the, the real more. Like they say, no LDS is apostate. It's it's like the, tr the real... it's the true and living church of the of the of the prophet Joseph Smith. Yeah, so we see we see this thing happening where people are like, okay, I need to like add more words. Yeah, you're right, uh, and that's a never it's a never ending effort. Uh, to uh, okay, 
So anyway, he goes on, uh, no one can take ownership of a word or title. I kind of disagree with that, but okay. We should express who we are and show who we are. Then that title, uh, whatever it may be, is what many would say that we are. And one day we will have the same title. The person who wrote this blog, What is Torah Anyway?, um, you know, I'm not going to down this person at all. I think that actually what they say is, is quite good. Um, I, I actually tend to agree with what they're saying here. And I would, I, mean, I would even agree with their, uh, their definition as it were quote, quote marks around definition, uh, because it's a very broad definition of what Messian, of what Hebrew roots is. The problem I see with this definition of Hebrew roots. Okay. Yes. According to the definition in this article, what is Torah anyway, uh, the, uh, according to the definition of uh, uh, this person makes of Hebrew roots, I would say, yes, I am Hebrew roots. But I said that in the show anyway. I said, yes, I would probably fall under the term Hebrew roots. The problem is, is that the thing that this article leaves out is that you still have all the it's a mixing pot. If you ask anyone who claims to be Hebrew roots, if two house is a theology within the Hebrew roots movement, the answer has to be yes. It has to be yes. Sacred name movement is lumped into Hebrew roots, right? Aleph Tav is lumped into Hebrew Hebrew roots. Paleo Hebrew Hebrew roots. So it's not just this definition that this lunar that, Sabbath lunar it's Sabbath is Hebrew roots. roots exactly. And so it's not just this one. Uh, you know, it's not just that we have this one t- title that this person gives. Now, I gr- granted, this title is a good, t- you know, this definition of the title is a good definition. I agree. I like it. Okay. And uh, yeah, I would say, I would have to say, just like Christianity, if somebody asks me, are you a Christian? Now, the person in this article actually addresses that very question. You know, we're not, you know, you, you wouldn't call them Christians because uh, we move away from a lot of the common understandings of what Christianity is. Okay, fair enough. But at the same time, um, I would say that about Hebrew roots for me. That's why I'm going to have to stick with one Torah, which by the way, I used at the ETS and SBL, which did uh, open up many a conversation. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to our main topic. Now I don't have any, uh, Clips. We have a topic. <laughs> we do, believe it or not. <laughs> Why is that funny? Uh, okay. play, get, play some of those clips again that you got. Which one? Just to just to lighten the mood. I don't know some of those some of those new uh, sound bites. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Let's see here. We were discussing one of your favorite old hangups: your anti-Jewish bias. I like that one because uh, people say that I'm anti-rabbinics. <laughs> and that's what I, I know that Jewish and rabbinics are different, but I, that's what I think of. We were discussing one of your favorite old hang-ups, your anti-Jewish bias. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, let, and, and according to Shapira, uh, I am... I am, well, you might say the, uh, the token Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally fine with me. I'm I'm proud to be the token Gentile. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Oh, that, okay, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, 
So I got this. Uh, I'm, you know, sometimes I don't have the time to respond to everybody uh, who emails me. And, and so I'm happy when people start like a line of thought and then I don't respond and they continue with the line of thought. You know, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't re- to them. It doesn't really matter if I'm responding or not. They're just trying to give me the information. That's nice. So this person writes in and they said, uh, yeah, I wrote this email they, they, to these people. Basically, their question was, you know, to, to this to this group, their question was, I know that you say that the Gentiles shouldn't be keeping Torah. OK, but then why are you trying to get all the Gentiles to come with you to Israel on this tour and celebrate the feast of the Lord and give you all this money? Ooh, Right. That's a yeah, fair question. So. Um, should I name the group? I found, okay, so outside of this person's email, I did a quick Google search and found this on a, on their site, posted on their site. So I'm not even taking this from the email anymore. So I suppose I can actually mention the name and everything and it's in your show notes anyway. So you already, you can already see it. This from the International Christian Zionist Center. Now I had never heard of these people. Have you heard of them, Rob? Uh, you know, to be honest, no. I kind of my brain kind of glazes over, my eyes kind of glaze over when I hear these titles because I really don't know if I I don't know if I would remember them correctly. I might mistaken them for another group. So it's like I kind of go maybe not sure. Hey, by the way, uh, I have a I have a, a, a homework assignment for uh, for our chat room. If somebody can find me the full clip of this. Somebody find me a, a sound clip of this this whole counting thing from Sesame Street. Wait, hang on. Where is it? Oh, we just have the seven. We have the seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. See, I want I want to go all, all the way to twelve. I think I have the whole thing. Somewhere. Do you? I'm the one that clipped that. All right. Well, find the whole thing for me. Okay. Anyway, okay. back to this. Um. So, this thing's long. And, and we're not going to get to the whole thing today, which is fine. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just get to the Acts 15. I figure that, you know, we've never actually touched on Acts 15. We just assume people know our position on Acts 15. Now, in the International Christian Zionist Center uh, defense, the name Christian is in their title. So it would only, you know, in my mind, it's only natural that the ICZC, <laughs> uh, the International Christian Zionist Center, would take a standard Christian view of the apostolic scriptures, right? I don't expect them to take a Messianic view or a one Torah view or a Hebrew roots view. Let's lump that in there too, okay? I expect them to take a tra- traditional Christian view. And actually, one of the things that, that's nice about uh, the fact that they're going to bring up Acts 15 right away in this article, I talked to Craig Keener. I met Craig Keener at uh, the ETS and the SBL. Craig Keener, for those who might not know, just wrote probably the definitive work on Acts it's this uh, three volume set. Each volume has to be about 700 pages a piece. There was a uh, there was a uh, a session, or maybe it was just a paper at the at the SBL. No, I think there was a whole session <clears throat> devoted to people talking about his. Yeah, and and the session was called "How long is too long?" <laughs> no, what? Oh, there was a paper within the lar- yeah. there was a larger session devoted to his this new volume that he produced, and one of the papers was. Enough already. Or yeah, something like, like how long was too long. Yeah. So anyway, there people poked at it, but it's it's like 
Yeah, it's huge. So we're well, ten thousand pages. I don't know. Not or not, maybe or maybe I. No, I'm it's it's it, we're looking at like fifty. We're looking at like fifteen hundred to to two thousand pages in total. It's it's ginormous. So my dad is sitting in the booth buying, like he's looking at it, and they don't have any copies left. And I say, hey, you know, look right over there. There's Craig Keener right there. You know, he's standing up at the booths. You know, like buying a book at the booth or talking to the people or whatever. And so my dad walks up right next to him, you know, and <laughs> says to the lady, hey, do you have Craig Keener's book on Axe? Anyway, so they start talking, you know, and uh, my dad says, how did you handle, I haven't read the book yet, how did you handle Axe 15? Unfortunately, Keener takes a standard Christian view, one of the standard Christian views that the uh, Acts 15 Jerusalem Council is talking about the Noahite laws. And uh, that is very unfortunate because my father's done a, a – he wrote a paper and presented a paper at the ETS talking about the Noahite laws. The, the question that I'd have – and we'll get into this a little bit more, but the question I'd have for people who believe that the, the Acts 15 is talking about the Noahite laws, so then is the is the book of Acts a God-breathed book sanctioning two different forms of sanctification – one for yeah. the Jews and one for the Gentiles. That's it. Isn't that what we're talking? Isn't that what we're up against? I mean, that's yeah. the. Yeah, I know exactly. It's it's a little frustrating, right? Okay, so let's read this paper. Let's read this this uh, this post from the International Christian Zionist Center. Quote, and this is long, so stop me whenever. If we are grafted into the good olive tree and have become part of Israel. Oh, by the way, this uh, t- uh, I should give you the name of the paper first. Quote, as Gentile believers, how should we then live? Okay. If we are grafted into the good olive tree and have become part of Israel, how should we then live? This is a difficult question to answer because the Bible itself is not always clear in this regard. Obviously, we disagree with that. I think it's quite clear. The question is, what should the way of life be? In other words, should it be the same as for Judah or somehow different? Now, I don't know if that means that the International Christian Zionist Center is leaning more towards a two-house theology Uh, or not. mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I don't know. I I haven't read anything about this. Yeah, that would make – that would fit. Not that that's necessary, but that would fit with the churches of Ephraim. Yes. Yes, agreed. Okay, so they go on. The scripture leaves open the possibility for those who love the people of God and who have been grafted into the good olive tree to assume the customs and lifestyle of Judah. Yeah, that's got to be two house. Got to be two house. According to the apostles, however, they do not have to. And now with this statement, what have we done? We've moved into divine invitation theology, right? They don't have to keep the Torah. They are invited to keep the Torah, which means what? What does that mean? It means that it's not sinning if you if you do this. It's sinning for the Jews, but it's not sinning for the Gentiles. You're invited to do it. If you don't do it, you're not sinning. There's no big deal. But if you want to do it, you can. You just don't have to, right? How does that play into Ephesians? Tell me how that plays into Ephesians. Nice. Thank you, Rob. Rob just sent me that song. 
No, well, Daniel, Daniel did, and I just forwarded it to you. Oh, thanks. Uh, from the chat room. Uh, yeah, it's like cricket sounds. I mean, the the idea is, and this was explored in one of the. Well, here's something that Gary alluded to it earlier in the chat room is that at at ETS there was a meeting put on by Chosen People Ministries, and I think were Jews for Jesus part of that? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I don't remember either. But. Uh, and Dr. Keener, I think, even may showed up for for a discussion there. But the idea was Jews for Jesus, chosen people, has an <clears throat> old school way of bringing the gospel to Jews. Yeah. Right? They're not trying to they're not trying to modify the Bible. They're not trying to say, well, hey, you know, Enoch is Metatron is Yeshua, so you can have the Zohar and the Gospels too. Are you talking about Jews for Jesus? I'm talking about the. Chosen people slash yeah okay so chosen for Jesus I would but say other, but, but then wait, at but, ETS but, but we wait, have the, the right, Kinzer point okay but hang on just a sec I would say that they're what they're doing is they're saying hey look we're Christians we're just trying to evangelize the Jews right and the other extreme but they're saying we're Jewish and we're proud of it and we even sure. have meetings and talk in Yiddish and stuff like that so they're seeing Jewish oh, as cultural right cultural yeah. uh, it's but it's not like Torah as covenant it's 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 understanding tradition. Torah's done away, but it's it's it has beauty and value, in as much as it's preserving a Jewish identity, but uh, no obligation. It's not defining sin, etc. Now, on the other hand, we had uh, Dr. Mark Kinzer's book uh, being discussed in the in the SBL strangely under a Hebrew, Hebrew language session, and there was no Hebrew about it. I, I don't know how they why they smuggled it in there. Uh, I mean, because there was no other place that they could smuggle it in. Uh, but smuggle nevertheless, in. <laughs> the idea is there is that there's possible, there's discussion of dissolving Messianic Jewish synagogues that want to walk halakhically observant lives, lifestyles and to basically as individuals merge into observant communities, non Jewish or non-Yeshua believing observant communities and to just become fully assimilate to a halakhic disciplined life under rabbinic authority seen as divinely sanctioned and then to just keep their discussions about Yeshua on the periphery, you know, staying in touch, meeting privately in homes uh, elsewhere Uh, and, and that's that's kind of on the table for and see Gentiles have no point of that. Uh, there's nothing to do with Gentiles there because the issue is we as Jews are in a kind of have a crisis of identity. We, we believe in Yeshua, but we're also Jews and we, we want to honor rabbinic authority and Jewish tradition. How do we do that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. And so- I just don't, I just don't see how, how that could survive. I mean, if, if it can't I, don't know. I mean, I can only imagine if you imagine like the rabbi of, of a, of a synagogue community, right. And he knows that there's this group that meets all the time privately and they have these other texts of sacred, te- sacred scripture that are not recognized by the synagogue as a whole. I, I just yeah. don't. I, I don't know. I don't think that's a workable uh, situation. 
Okay, so I think but, Yeshua's reject. Yeshua said he would be rejected by the synagogues. I mean, that's just—it's not a mistake. It's not that the—it's not that the believers in Yeshua didn't know how to preach the gospel correctly to Jews. <laughs> it's not like well, yeah, if they know. only would have changed. It's not like if if Stephen is standing there in front of the Sanhedrin. You know, Stephen, they ended up stoning you, but you know what? If you would have just said, "Look, you guys, you know who Metatron is, right?" <laughs> you know, just Yeshua is like Metatron. They wouldn't have stoned him. Is that is that what? They, I don't understand where the the thought process. Okay, I'll I'll step uh, off. My okay, soapbox. so so let's let's keep going with this though. Okay, so we've within this first paragraph, we've already hit possible uh, two house theology, right? We've already hit uh, uh, divine invitation theory. Okay, so these people are hitting on all, they're hitting on all cylinders. Uh, you know, they're, yeah, they're, okay. Uh, the problem are, the, I'm going on with their, with their statement. The problem already arose when the first Gentiles came to faith through the preaching of Peter and Paul. So what was the problem? I don't understand. Okay, Wait a anyway. minute. There's a problem there? <clears throat> yeah, apparently. So okay. they're going to go on. Uh, the apostles held council in Jerusalem. So, so they think that the problem is uh, Acts 15. Okay. The apostles held council in Jerusalem and discussed whether these born again, they put uh, parentheses around there, born again Gentiles who had also received the Holy Spirit would be required to keep all the laws of Moses. Okay. Right there, they're making assumptions. That's an assumption. And not only that, but it's an assumption made with a bias from uh, pr- from indoctrinated Christ- uh, Christological theology, right? Tov meod kalev. Okay, they go on. After a long session, they concluded that they shouldn't burden the new Gentile believers with circumcision and the other laws of Moses. Okay. Uh, I disagree with that, obviously. After hearing Peter draw this conclusion, all the apostles who were present agreed that, and then they quote, this is interesting how they quote this. They quote Acts 15, 8 to 11, and Acts 15, 28 and 29. Uh, sh- should we read this or should we read the whole text? So, okay, let's read what they have first, and then we'll talk about it. God, who knows the hearts, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did to us. Okay, so in my mind right there, when we're talking about Acts 15, it says that the Holy Spirit was given to the Jews and the Gentiles exactly the same, right? You with me so yeah. far, Rob? Yeah, in other words, in other words the, the us doesn't mean all Jews. It means Jewish believers in Yeshua. Yeah, and listen and listen to the next statement. And he put no in other words. They, in other words, before they needed Jews needed something just as much as Gentiles needed something, right? It's not like now Gentiles are just included in all of Israel. It's both both needed. Yeah, listen to Go this ahead. next statement too. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile and how they're purified, right? That's right. Purified hearts by faith in Yeshua. That's the work of, of the Holy the, Spirit of the Holy by Spirit. Yeshua's work on our behalf 
in our hearts, that's new covenant heart, that where they're saying, wow, okay, not only do we Jewish believers in Yeshua have purified hearts in Yeshua, and we want to share that with other Jews, wow, God's doing a, this amazing thing. He's actually joining Gentiles to us in the same mission, purifying their hearts too. And therefore, all our traditional hang-ups with fear of associating with Gentiles, wow, that must not be in the Torah. That must be a later development that we've been using. It's been a plank in our eye. And now we've been seen, we've seen that this is wrong. That, there was, was, that was a wrong interpretation that we've been carrying around. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so, uh, yeah, okay. Let's go on. I, I think it's interesting how they, how they uh, chop this chapter up. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So I'm, I'm confused. Uh, according to the understanding, the traditional understanding or the understanding that the International Christian Zionist Center is taking, does this mean that the Torah was a burden that nobody could bear and that therefore the Jews weren't keeping the Torah anymore? It says that they couldn't bear it. So they're right, going to. That's the key question. That's a key hermeneutical point you could ask somebody. When Peter mentions a yoke, what's he talking about? Yeah, because they're going to say it's the Torah. Is it talking about the Torah of Moses? Or is he talking about traditions of men that have uh, created this wall of separation that never was intended by God? Yeah, exactly. And actually, hang on. Now let's, let's move over here to— And we look throughout the Gospels. Where tra- Yeshua trains his disciples, trains us, to discern traditions of elders that are over— their, their, uh, the traditions of the fathers that are uh, lifted up higher than the Word of God, and they make they nullify God's Word. How many times are we trained in the apostolic writings to and challenged to grow in our discernment of traditions of men <clears throat> that are overreaching and and absolutely uh, but, obscuring God's Word? Okay. I mean, we're we're trained to. To divide that. But listen to how he juxtaposes this. So in, in we're in Acts 15.10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He answers himself in 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. He's talking about a salvation issue. The Torah is not a salvation issue, and the, and the disciples never taught that it was. So they're not talking about the Torah of Moses. In, according to the new, uh, the new perspective on Paul, at least some people's version of the new perspective on Paul, there was no debate going on on whether or not the, uh, the works of Torah could save you. No Jew believed that. There's no evidence that the Jewish population in the first century believed that doing enough good works would get you into heaven. Right? Do you agree with that, Rob? Yeah. Basically, with for the most part, the new perspective was Sanders' critique of Lutheranism, or Martin Luther, who, who imagined that Paul's interaction with the Pharisees was like his, like Luther's interaction with the Roman church. In other words, they had all these things you had to do. You had to climb the stairs on your knees. You had to kiss a bone. 
you know, or whatever. I make it up. So, but there was all selling of indulgences. He imagined that in the first century, that's what Judaism was like. But that's really when we look at the texts. That's not what's going on. That's not really what's going on. And actually, there so, might be a there might be a certain degree of that here, but it's it, there's a lot of other information that Luther just didn't have, you know point. Well, yeah, he but didn't have access to. Basically, one of the things, and I, I hold to this portion of the new perspective on Paul, and I, we've stated this many times on this show before. The Jewish population, it seems from the evidence that we have, the Jewish population in the first century, what they actually believed about salvation is, if you had Jewish blood, you were circumcised on the eighth day, brought into the covenant, you were in. Right? Some gr- Some groups believed that. Okay. I mean, there's and, different groups. Okay, and as a, I'm making broad statements now, it seems like a lot of the groups believed if you, not all the groups, but some of the groups believed that if you were not born to Jewish parents and circumcised on the eighth day, what'd you have to do? You had to do a couple of special things. I'm using very careful wording here, Rob. You had to do a couple of very special things to get in, and th- those things might differ from group to group. But you would do a couple of special things to become part of any given group, depending on what rituals they wanted you to do or whatever, to become a part of them. And being and, here, a, and another a correlation to that, Caleb, if I may add, is we see strong evidence from texts in the Second Temple period, Jewish religious texts that are not biblical. Yeah. That for QMMT and whatnot. Yeah. That that equated. Fellowshipping and eating meals with Gentiles threatens is a threat to Israel. You're threatening. You're you're blurring the boundaries. You're threatening true Israel, and we need to build up the walls of true Israel because true only true Israel will be saved. Yeah. And so there's a zeal to protect the borders of don't mingle, don't don't mix and mingle with Gentiles because that could lead to uh, idolatry. It could eat uh, a, a uh, fornication. It could lead to eating, you know, and sacrificing to foreign god worship of other gods. All these things were associated, and so there was an anxiety about Gentile mingling that we see in multiple different texts. And so what we see here—that's the behind the scenes in Acts two. You know, I brought that up in the one conference. I, I said, "Look, we don't have any evidence that Galatians two is that they're eating unclean food." Yeah. The issue is table fellowship between Jew and Gentile, and the the, the panel. They're looking at me like they've never read um, <laughs> any of any of. They've never read N.T. Wright, or they've never read. Now, N.T. Wright would say that ultimately it would lead to Jews being able to eat unclean food, and I disagree with Dr. Wright on that vehemently. Oh, that, I think that's ridiculous. But the point is, uh, the most Pauline scholars, New Perspective scholars, would say, yeah. At, at issue in, Gen, in uh, Galatians 2 is just Jew and Gentile sitting together, co- commensiality, open commensiality, because the, the border, and we know that from Acts 10, the resistance was for a Jew to go into a Gentile space and eat a meal, sit down and eat a meal, because that's making a, that's making a relational connection now. We're covenant, we're, we're somehow on the same page of, of covenant and community, and therefore the meal means something. It means something to go into somebody's house and to sit down and have a meal with them. And I said, look, I, I quoted uh, Dr. Graydon Snyder, who did all this work on early Christian iconography. I said, Dr. Snyder's book points out that, wow, all the earliest paintings of meals 
for Christians is fish and wine and bread. <laughs> and it's always fish like trout. It's scale. It's it. We don't have any pic iconography for the first, you know, for first several hundred years of Christianity where anybody's eating unclean food. I said, where's your data that tells you that, that, yeah. uh, that Galatians 2 is about unclean food? And they're saying, well, we just have to assume. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is SBL. And we're just going to say, well, we just have to assume. No. And this is what I'm talking to your dad about it later. He's like, and I, I don't remember who he's quoting. Maybe it was Jacob Neusner. What we can't show, we can't know. If we're in, in those circles, in the SBL, when we're talking about just history and what you can show from text, we're not talking about theology. What you can't show, what we can't show, we can't know. And all the evidence is that it was, that at issue was Jews sitting down with Gentiles and eating as if they're family. family. That was the problem. That's why Paul was, most likely why Paul was uh, upset about the church, at least one of the things okay, that Paul but, was upset Okay, but let's get back to the Acts 15 passage. Acts 15, 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so right. now we're talking about a salvation issue. This is not a Torah issue. The, the disciples never believed that a person was justified by faith. Okay, so let's go on. In 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And that's with Simon Peter, that's referring back to what Luke shares in Acts 10, right? Okay. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, quote, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by the name, my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Uh, Acts fifteen nineteen. Therefore, my judgments, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain. Okay, so... Now he's explaining this whole issue. Back back when he talked about salvation, now he's going to explain this. So what was so the question is what were the Jews saying? What were the Jews thinking was saving them? The Torah or was it bloodline? Yeah, it was it was who is true Israel. True Israel will be saved. Exactly, and we need to and we need to define true Israel, and by doing that, that's where they build up these extra, extra biblical walls. Okay, so my father has has uh, in the paper that I referenced, and I wish I would have put it in your show notes. You can find it at TorahResource.com. dot com. Then go go to the English articles. If you search in there, uh, the title of the the uh, the paper is "Do the Seven Go to Heaven: An Examination of the Noahite Laws." So he argues that the Noahite laws weren't on the scene in the first century. They don't come around until much, much, much later. Seventh century, I think, is the where he first dates. Uh, the... Well, not only that, not only were they not around in the first century, the early emergence of the Noahide laws in re post seventy rabbinic literature is that it's a it's in not only is there not only seven. There's I think some lists have up to ten or or more. So there's all these different lists that don't even agree. But in every context, it was a condemnation to say, look, Gentiles can't even keep these. It was always a judgment against Gentiles, not a, a rule. I think it's not until the medieval time where all of a sudden it becomes a rule that if Gentiles live up to these things, then they're considered 
uh, righteous from the nations. But yeah, that's a great, and I think your dad gave you that paper almost, maybe almost 20 years ago. No, 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 um, he gave it in at, 2006. 2006, oh, 2006 in Washington, okay. D.C. It was the first ETS I went to. Okay, so that was 10 years ago. Um, my mistake. There's a paper he wrote in 97 that, that I had in mind. But anyway, that yeah, he delivered that to ETS. I, I was not there for that, but... Okay, so he uh, he goes so now now Acts fifteen nineteen he's listing four things. What are these four things? If they're not the Noahite laws, we don't believe they are the Noahite laws. You don't see the Noahite laws coming onto the scene until much later. And uh, as Rob was talking to me before the show, you can't find them anywhere in the Torah. Go into the Torah without looking at where they find the Noahite laws. Figure out the seven laws that the rabbis say were given to the Gentiles. If you keep, and, you know, if you keep these seven laws, the Gentiles will be righteous. Well, yeah, and, and even the early, like we were saying, you know, the early lists of Noahide laws, are dis- they disagree with yeah. each other, and there's not only seven, there's more. There's, some lists have way more, and your dad's article does a good job of outlining that. Okay, so the point is, is that first century, no such thing. We don't find any evidence whatsoever that the Noahide laws were... Uh, around or even being talked about in the first century. So then if these aren't the Noahite laws, what are they? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So you have four things here now. This is verse 20 of Acts 15. You have four things, right? And my father argues, I think that he, uh, I think that he's, he's on to something with his argument here. He argues that all four of these things have to do with the pagan temple. Now, I know that there's different uh, ideas of what this is, but if you look, things polluted by idols, okay, that's done in the pagan temples. Sexual immorality, temple prostitution was a huge problem in the first century, Okay, we know that, and there's there's plenty of uh, evidence for that. And from what has been strangled, uh, it has been argued that uh, some of the sacrifices in the pagan temples were strangled, and from blood, they would drink blood in the pagan temples. So the idea is, if you came into a... My father's uh, basic point is, uh, in his paper, and you can find this once again in the article section, his point is, is that uh, if you came into a synagogue as a Gentile, Messianic or not, in the first century, and remember that a lot of these synagogues were commingled, some believing in the Messiah, some not. But if you came into the synagogue in the first century and you did something like this, you said, I'm part of you, I want to be part of you, I believe in the Messiah Yeshua, and you did something that clearly was pagan, clearly was pagan, done in the, in the uh, pagan temples. It was like excommunicate. It would, it would be like today. Let me, let me put it into modern terms. You have a small group, maybe 50 people. You have a couple come in. It's two guys. They say, hey, we have found the Messiah. He's opened our eyes to his truth. We've repented of our sins. We want to be part of your group. What would you say? Okay. What's one of the first rules you'd give them? You can't participate in, in homosexual sin anymore, right? If you do, what does that mean? It means that your conversion isn't, you know, your conversion, I'm putting that in quotation marks. 
It means that your conversion has not really been a true conversion. It means that your heart's not right with God. Well, it's the same thing that's going on here. You're telling these pagan Gentiles, you can't participate in the pagan rituals that you used to. But the, the thing that so many Christians leave out is this verse 21. And I think that this is the crux verse in this whole passage. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What in the world? No one who holds to the idea that the Gentiles needed to keep four commandments are given four commandments has ever explained well, in my opinion, what verse 21 means. Why would they put this in there? I know. And, and you know, some of these people, well, the Sabbath is the only commandment not repeated in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a repeat. And it's like, wait a minute. Shabbat is mentioned more than any other commandment because it's everything's happening on the Sabbath and on the Sabbath this and on the Sabbath this and on the Sabbath this. And here again, like you point out, Caleb, the very next passage, I, I don't know any other assumption than that Gentiles are going to the synagogue on Shabbat. Yeah, that they will learn the rest of the Torah. Yeah, to, hear Mo, to learn Moses. In the synagogue on Shabbat. So, I, well, here... here Here's the here's the other side though. Well, yeah, but all they're gonna they're gonna learn their place. They're gonna learn that they're not Israelites and that they. Um, Where are, though? Where are they gonna they learn that? Have, Where are they gonna learn it? Because they're gonna skip the verses that says it's the same. It's Torah Achad. But here's the Achad. here's the point. You have you have groups like the UMJC saying that the Gentiles need to go back to the Christian Church. Mark Kinzer specifically teaches that the Gentiles should be in the Catholic Church. Right. That's weird. Yeah, well, a Catholic, but yeah, he affirms the Catholic Church okay. as, a, as a valid voice. So, yeah. so then what? How? Why Which would change the Sabbath? Right? Yeah. So why That's would it say? Terrible. Then why would it say that they would be in the synagogue on Sabbath? And for those in the UMJC who say that the Sabbath is a identity marker for the Jewish people and should not be kept by the Gentiles because that's stealing the identity of the Gentile, of the Jewish people. What do you do with verse twenty one? I don't get it. I just don't. We don't I, quote it, Caleb. Oh, yeah. Exa- and they don't. That's exactly right. They all, I, I, I'm astounded how everyone seems to stop at Acts 15.20 and not go on to 1521. Okay. Um, I, should we stop there for today? I mean, this, yeah. this article, yeah. this article goes on and on. And actually they bring up all sorts of stuff. Acts 21.17 through 22 and 25. 1 Corinthians 7, 18 through 19, Matt, and then he, he uh, addresses Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Matthew 7, 12, uh, Jeremiah 31, 30, I mean, it goes on and on and on, Romans 13. He touches basically on all the major passages. He goes into Galatians, Colossians 2. He basically it's the popular, it's the popular reading. Yeah, yeah basically what he has done is, whoever has written this article, what they have done and I, apparently it was written by Jan William Vander Hoven, director of the International Christian Zionist Center. So what Jan has done here is he's basically just outlined the standard argument from a Christian perspective against one Torah theology, right? Um, so I, I think that this article, we can certainly come back to it. We've gotten in three paragraphs into what seems to be probably five or six pages, of a uh, of of his response to uh, 
well, I think it's a response to the gentleman's article or uh, email that he sent me originally. You know, but, I, real quick, we're going to shift <laughs> just to wrap up. Iconoclast left a yeah, note. He said, for the end of the show, I, I, I'll, I'll just share concerning how my paper went at SBL and Tim's. Uh, Tim's paper on, what, just to give a real quick recap, Tim gave a paper on the Kare Kativ, which is a, a scribal a place where the scribes had the word lo, lamed aleph, meaning not, but the, in their scribal Masora instruction, they say read it not as lo with an aleph, not, but lamed vav, lo, to him. And there's like 18 or so of these throughout the Tanakh. And what Tim did was basically go through and look at the 10 popular Christian and then a couple, I, I, he looked at JPS and another popular Jewish translation done by a non-Christian, you know, Jewish publishing company, and basically did all the the behind the scenes to see how did they, did they, in each of these verses, did this translation go with the what is kativ, the written, or did they go with the scribal kare in this particular thing? So because he chose something that was only 18 or 20, it was manageable, and he was able to give the whole paper. Um, but basically, there's the data uh, is really crazy. There's times where all the ancient translations went with the Kativ, but all the modern Christians go with the Kare, but the but the but that particular translation, whether it's ESV or NASB or NIV or NLT or whatever, doesn't give the reader the rationale for why in this instance we're going with the scribal advice rather than what is written. Well, it, it should be also be noted, Rob, that there, that there is, uh, there are numerous times when every hundred across the board, hundred percent of the translations take the scribal note instead of what is actually written in the text. So right, my father, that's, that's what we're getting at. And I'm going to post just for our listeners who are in our chat room. I'll post the link. But uh, thankfully, Tim already posted his article, uh, so you can download it um, uh, from the Torah Resource uh, website under Articles in English. It's uh, one of the first ones, but it just says. Uh, Kare Kativ. And so uh, anyway, well, it, if you it, want well, to look at that well, and you go to the very last page, if you want to see the table that Tim put together, it's really helpful to see it all, all the data together. We um, should, and we then, should, wait, wait, hang on. We should give, we should give a, a recap of how it actually went though. Uh, in, oh. in terms of my father's paper, the, the problem that, uh, that I saw with what was going on was they, uh, because it was kind of an abstract uh, title and content for the ETS. It probably would have uh, read better at the SPL, but uh, because it was kind of uh, abstract that way, they put him into a uh, a, a group that was uh, kind of odds and ends, if you will. Yeah, it's like general, Old Testament yeah. general. And yeah, and so, and so they they uh, they put him on the very last day in the very last slot, and uh, so a lot of people had already gone home. And uh, so, it, to be honest, it wasn't that well attended. However, the people who did attend it uh, and tracked with it really, really enjoyed it. And I thought that if people would have maybe had a better idea of what the paper was about, I think it would have uh, been a much more uh, well-attended paper because, honestly, he's asking a very important question. Why have the translations taken a specific this or that. Why, why did yeah. they choose this? Why did they choose the scribal this over the written? Yeah, and at sometimes, and then sometimes not. Yeah, so exactly. is it arbitrary? Do they just vote? You know, and it's a fair question. You know, and, and and he does point out though there are some some of the translations do 
some of the study Bibles, like the ESV, and the will net. have a footnote. Yeah, the net. But for example, I was sharing uh, with a friend last night, trying to explain this concept to him. He's he's a pastor at a Nazarene church locally, and I'm trying to explain to him this corrective, and I'm showing him Tim's paper, and I'm saying, well, here's how to understand it. And we went to, I said, well, let's look up Psalm 100 in your Bible. So he had his ESV there, and I showed him the ESV, the main text goes with the scribal the scribes reading and has the what's written in the footnote. So, so my my, my thought there is like so what what we don't understand is why not just put what is written in the main text and then have the scribal so note, note in the notes. In the footnote. Yeah, and, and so I said it's it's kind of uh, asking this bigger question of method of translation and then how how are translators or how are Bible study Bibles Bible translations etc. best going to communicate some of these issues to the lay audience. And I don't like using the word lay audience, but but basically we have a problem with low Bible literacy. We have Bibles everywhere. There's no, it's not like we need more Bibles, you know, in the, in the English speaking world. Many of us have many, many Bibles at home. The problem is literacy, is yeah. how often are people engaged in reading and chewing on and getting to a level where they can contrast like we have today, the King James versus the ESV in certain places, like at Mark 7.19 or in Acts 15 and Acts 21, where we're engaging with the issue of, wow, there's text histories, there's uh, what we call transmission of manuscripts and, and where variants get added and things like this. Um, are, we have a low literacy rate in America, and I think that's another reason why uh, the ET, or ETS, they see the value of the paper, the guys who are pulling the strings, but they're like, well, we're not really sure where to put it, <laughs> yeah, because no, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a big red flag for us. It's 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 interesting, and who knows? And so they put it at the end. So okay, but our hope is that in the, we'll just persist. We're just, you know, we'll just persist in in our studies and and just. I know we're going over my paper. Went, oh no, no, no. Went, my paper, I think, went pretty well. Um, yeah, I think I, had a I think of, I think your paper went very well, and. Uh, okay, let me give it from my perspective first because I was in the audience. Rob Van Hoff, now granted the Masora section, the section that he presented in, is a, it's kind of like a good old boys club. <laughs> Every year the same old guys are sitting in the seats. They, uh, you know, they all know each other. They all know each other's names. They all know the work that each other are doing because the Masora section is small. So they always put it in a smaller room. Okay, and it's never full. It's never full, and uh, so here comes Rob Van Hoff, this new guy on the scene. Never, no one's really ever seen him in the Missouri section before. No one knows who he is or why he's presenting there, and you can tell that there's. It's like, it's like the new lion comes onto the plane, you know, and all the other <laughs> male lions are like, "What? What is this guy doing here?" Right. However. Not only did he hold his own, but uh, he he spoke to a completely packed room. There was very limited seating by the time uh, he got going. And there was one lady who really tried to take him to task afterwards. She was not very happy with his paper or, uh, you know, and almost she almost came across. I know she wasn't trying to, but she almost came across as... How dare you come into this she, section? She was English, just so everybody, she's English as a, like a second language. Yeah. So she, she's fluent in English. I mean, but, but you know, she was from Europe. There's an accent. 
And she was was she German? She she seemed like my. She's from Spain. She's Spanish. Ah, that explains it. Okay, so she tries to take Rob to task with basically this: "You little moron! How dare you? You've overlooked some of the most obvious. You know how this is obvious to everyone else. You don't know what in the world you're talking about." So now, Rob, explain to our audience what your paper was about, why this lady took you to task, and then your brilliant response to this lady that I think kind of shut her down and I made the I, and I made the oh what. it was it was brilliant and the and the whole uh, yeah punk kid is what somebody says in the chat room and and I'm uh, the punk yeah and and so uh, Rob responds to this fiery outburst from this lady. Not only eloquently, but I think the whole room kind of uh, took notice, uh, like, oh, apparently he's not going to sit back and, and take it from, you know, someone. Go ahead. T- tell people what your paper Well, I don't remember that. I wasn't there for I mean, I, <laughs> you were there I for that. Couldn't, I, I wasn't there for my response, <laughs> meaning I don't remember what I said. I, you were there uh, from an outside perspective. Oh, well, he started to have a, ha- a Hoff goes off moment. <laughs> Actually, Caleb played the theme song. <laughs> right there, no, the Hoff goes off. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, he, you know, basically she was saying, well, the, the, uh, so, okay, explain what your paper is about and then I'll, then I'll give well, it a recap. Okay, it's in a nutshell. And I think we're going to play it on the radio. We will. Uh, we're we're going to, so people will hear it. Uh, but um, basically, I, I get into, this is also in the Masora section. We're dealing with, super we're, heady. We're in the weeds. We're in the weeds with, the scribal notes, the accumulated scribal notes called Masora, while they're tr- copying the Tanakh or the Torah over between, you know, the destruction of the temple and the Middle Ages. So, like, there's this thousand-year period that we don't know a lot about, about how scribes copied the scriptures. But what I'm doing, I'm, I'm looking at places where the Masora is, is telling through the scribe, just like we saw with the low below in Tim's paper, where the scribes are telling the reader how to interpret the scriptures. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at, in the Babylonian Talmud, at places where, this, where the rabbis of the Talmud are also tell, at these same locations telling people how to understand the scripture and how that they come up with different answers. And there's times where I'm arguing that the rabbis are saying, don't read it the way the scribes are telling you to read it. Read it the way we're telling you to read it. And there's a little bit of clash between scribal culture and the scribal's uh, project and the, the Babylonian academy, rabbinic academies. They're trying to form two different types of, of, of pious Jews. The scribes are trying to preserve a text to make sure that they don't add or change anything. And that's a full-time job. And, and, and while they're doing that, they're accumulating other information they're making observations about the text. but And they are at times saying, don't read this this way, read it this way. Uh, because in for the most part, because the scribes are saying there's going to be a place where there's no olive in a word that you'd expect an olive to be there. Don't add an olive. You do not have authority to add an olive to the Torah. So what we're going to do is we're going to write the word with the olive in this other plate, in this in other the side margin. text, yeah. in the margin or in another area, to remember to read it as if the olive's there, but it's to remind the scribe that when he's writing and he goes, oh, there's an olive missing, it's to help him go, no, or, or yes, there is an olive missing, but that you don't have license to add it. You have to leave it out. That's what the scribes are in, involved in. But the, the rabbis, however, they say, oh, there's no olive there. Well, it's because of 
some this, this is, and they have this huge midrashic interpretations that come out of why there's no Aleph there. And what you then have is a tension between the scribes reading of the Torah, how they're telling people to read the Torah, and how the rabbis are telling people to read the Torah. And I'm trying to unpack kind of the social history here. And the, the, the lady, the, the professor from Spain, um, and afterwards I sat down and I talked to her, and she, we, we, we kind of worked through, and she, I think she was able to communicate uh, what her idea was. And uh, in any event, that she... She, she looked physically bothered by yeah, your paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was upset. She said, I have so much to say. Yeah. Like there was a there was a big reaction, you know, that she had big emotional reaction. Um, and so anyway, my hope is because I was invited to come back next year and offer a follow up. I'm hoping to to t- hear some of the things that I think I could have done better, because what I'm 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 not worried about the, what upset her. I'm worried about, OK, what can I take away to sharpen my perspective? How can I better say what I want to say that might help those, particularly those who are English as a second language? to make sure I'm super clear on what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. And I think that I, I take away from my session much value in, in that. And I, as the days had gone by, and even the other day, I, I have a file, I'm going back and I'm uh, making notes to myself as it occurs to me, okay, I could do this better. How could I sharpen this? And things as I'm praying about, you know, am I going to do a paper next year? Um, things that I can incorporate to expand what I'm trying to say, but also sharpen it uh, as well. But you know what? It could be that next year there's going to be someone else who's going to be, oh, you know, so, so when, I don't this, like what you're doing. This this lady tries to basically uh, stand up and say, look, you're, you're, you're no, there was no tension between these two. They're not, this isn't, you know, you, you haven't, you haven't, uh, you don't understand basically. And And after Rob lets this lady go on and on and on, basically he shuts her down and I'm paraphrasing here, but he shuts her down with, yeah, but you're assuming that the rabbinic literature that we have from the Mishnah and the Talmud was extant. You know, like basically that the traditions were coincided, but they didn't coincide. You know, yeah, you yeah. had this literature first. And you, so uh, I, I and <laughs> so it came to a chronological. I think that she was making a chronological assumption. And I asked her afterwards, I said, I asked her how she dated her, her, the Midrashim. And she referred to the, 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 you know, the, the introduction to Talmud and Midrash that we use. She referred to that book. But I, but I'm thinking that she, she's mistaken the manu, the dating of the manuscripts with, with where scholars say they came from that era. So in other words, it's like the Mishnah. The Mishnah we know was in the air sometime in the third century, right, and beyond. But we don't have a manuscript of the Mishnah. The, the earliest manuscript of the Mishnah is like, is like 1,000, yeah. roughly. So what we're doing is all we have is what's in the, from the year 1,000. We don't have, even though we're saying, yeah, it was in the air several hundred years prior, we don't have the text of it being. And so a lot of things happen over time. Uh, so anyway, what, but like I said, both Tim's paper, my paper, get into the 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 weeds uh, that's the one way i've been thinking of it we're getting into the nitty-gritty into the minutiae and nuance of scribal tradition the scribal transmission of the hebrew bible 
and how interpretive communities build around it, whether it's Christians interpreting it, telling people what it means, whether it's the scribes, whether it's the rabbis. Um, everybody has a stake in, in telling other people what the Bible means, and we're getting right there. So the people at the Masora section usually are pretty solid on their Hebrew. I mean, there was, like Dr. Marcus, he's citing, I mean, he, he knows how much of the Tanakh by heart, um, because he lives in that space. He lives in the space of the scribes, how they are making decisions about marking up the Masora, and that's that's one of his uh, one of his loves. By the way, there's a good book if anybody's interested in just diving into what Dr. Marcus does. It's called Scribal Wit. It's kind of spendy. I'll type it in the th- uh, David Marcus, M A R C U S, and it's called uh, Scribal Wit. And it's a brilliant book. It's it's like eighty bucks or so. It's it's not a cheap book. But that'll give you a, a taste of, of what the Masorah scribes were doing. It's very different than what the rabbis of the Talmud are doing. Uh, it's very, very different. But they are invested in transmitting Scripture and, and the meaning of Scripture. Here's a question for you. Okay, uh, I hope that was a good rundown for everyone in the uh, chat room. Uh, so here's the, here's the question. Should we continue on with this uh, International Christian Zionist Center uh, article next week and hit all these... You know, try to hit all these uh, these common uh, verses that are brought up by those who oppose one Torah theology. Or should we do a history and a rundown of Hanukkah, since we will be in the middle of Hanukkah? Oh, we should at least talk about Hanukkah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it does, I think we could do a little bit of Hanukkah at least. I think, well, not only that, but we could look at First uh, and Second Maccabees as texts. And as, and their historical uh, journey to where they are now, uh, all these kind of things, right? So, uh, okay, maybe we'll do that next week. Um, we've gone. Uh, this has been a longer show, and I hope you've enjoyed that. If not, uh, well, then we apologize. Uh, we I have, just found Scribal Wit on Amazon. It's only it's sixty three bucks. So, only, and I posted the link there. And so Adam, not that anybody has to buy it. I'm just saying, if you're interested in, in diving into the status of, of Masoretic studies and what kind of things were going on there and, and the kind of texts that, that Tim and I are engaged in when we're researching and writing on Masora, this is a good place as any. Okay. Um, so next week, uh, we start Hanukkah. Is it Saturday night or Sunday night we start Hanukkah? I think it's Sunday. Sun- think it's Sunday, Sunday night. night is the first night of Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah to everyone if you celebrate such a festival. Uh, I sure do. Uh, Yeshua did. We're, we're going to have a debate on how to spell Hanukkah in English. <laughs> so I would like people over the next week to gather, as not invent your own spellings, but find variant, yes. how many variant spellings of Hanukkah Post them on our Facebook page. In English. Yeah. Definitely. And let's we'll get maybe our top top ten. I don't know. I feel like I've been away from this uh, from from our podcast for so long, and I've switched so much with the soundboard. I I, I like don't know how to leave anymore. We, um, we appreciate everybody's technical feedback. Yeah, uh, Caleb's using his new newer system with new stuff, and so the been, volume still might be dialed in. It uh, took or me need some it, just so people know. It took me a month, a month to figure out how to get the audio. Right, and it's still not quite right. So we're working on it. Um, anyway, okay. Um, let me get this here. Okay, so 
Uh, should we do outro music? Are we done? Anything else you want to say before we go, Rob? No, Baruch Hashem. I, I, I'm so glad to be back. I'm grateful for our trip. We're, we're so grateful for everybody's support of Tor yeah, Resource. No doubt. That the Lord has provided for us to go and do and be engaged in scholarship on these levels, even if it's minutia things. We don't know what God's doing, where he's leading us in this, but we're, we're, our desire is to be engaged with scholarship, to uh, represent Torah resource, to, you know, and to, to honor Yeshua as, in, in, with our skills and with the, the equipment that he's given us to be good stewards of, of, of the resources that we have. Uh, that's a long time to be away from home, as anybody yeah, knows no who travels for, for over a week, uh, especially, you know, in our I think there were storms both in Tacoma and in Spokane. Right. My family lost power. We have two trees down. So there were all sorts of things behind the scenes going on. But we are so grateful for this. And we're, But at the same time, we're grateful to be back and be able to do our show again and be back in the normal uh, swing of things. Okay, hang on. Uh, Robert asks you a question, Rob. He says, there was a book Rob mentioned a few weeks ago about where Jewish customs and traditions originated. Am I remembering that correctly? I wrote it down and then lost it. I wonder if, um, uh, Robert, if you could email me maybe some more context. Um, it's not ringing a bell, uh, but if, um, if, or if you could tell me which show it was or something like that. Uh, Jewish and Customs and Traditions Originated. Yeah, that's a hard um, one. I'll have to think that's about a tough, that. It's, it's a little too general. If there's, uh, if there's anything you can remember, Robert, that's the help zero it in. I would be happy to 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 send that to you. Okay, I'm going to start our exit music here. Uh, we hope that you had a fun time uh, in this. If you have questions about Acts 15, uh, feel free to send them our way. Seahag at TorahResource.com. and be sure to read the Tim Hag articles. That's right. Our Van Hoff at TorahResource.com. You can find the Robin Caleb Show on Facebook as well. You can post questions there and be a part of the conversation. And uh, we hope that you have a wonderful Hanukkah. Uh, Man, I'm so excited to celebrate Hanukkah with my three-year-old this year. He's just so cute. (laughs) So anyway, uh, yeah, and safe travels to uh, everyone who's traveling for Hanukkah, for Hanukkah and uh, whatnot. Anyway, we hope that uh, this discussion has glorified the one that we serve, our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.